Welcome back to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay in Baltimore, and we're continuing our series of Reality Asserts Itself interviews with lawyer, I should say radical human rights lawyer, Michael Ratner, who now joins us in the studio. Thanks for joining us again, Michael. Nice to be back with you, Paul. And just another one more time. Michael is President Emeritus of the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York. He's Chair of the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights in Berlin. He's also a member of the board of The Real News Network and all kinds of other stuff. If there's one important story that gets almost zero coverage at today, it is the Puerto Rican independence movement, uh, the whole Puerto Rican politics, perhaps maybe in New York there's more, but across the country nationally there's, there's virtually no consciousness of Puerto Rico, period. Uh, tell us more about you know, your involvement. That's ebbed and flowed, of course. In the 50s when I was a kid, uh, some Puerto Rican nationalists shot up the U.S. Congress. They didn't kill anybody, but that was front page everywhere. So you got some consciousness then um, of Puerto Rican independence. Of course, Puerto Rican was, uh, was made a colony in 1898. It was originally a Spanish colony. The U.S. claiming it was helping push Spain out just decided to stay and occupy it as a territory of the United States. And so it has a history of incredible colonialism and still continuing. We can tell stories about everything from sterilization to finishing off the farming, uh, you know, to having a military base on Vieques, an island off Puerto Rico that did bombing runs. It's just an incredibly exploited piece of land, uh, exploited so badly that essentially Puerto Ricans were better off, uh, at least in their view economically, by moving to the United States. It became heightened again in the 70s, I think, um, when I was a young lawyer, uh, I think in part in New York because there were a million Puerto Ricans in New York, a million. Um, it, they're dispersed now as, you know, it's changed suburban more and all that. Um, and there was a liberation movement that was very strong, varying from a very strong nationalist movement, uh, which would have been the most radical movement, uh, to a Puerto Rican socialist party movement, which is, I would fit in that whole spectrum, uh, to then there being, you know, statehooders on the, on the far, right of it. Um, but, but really in some way, it, I didn't come at it on my own. I came at it because it was such a huge issue in New York at the time. And because I was representing dra dra the draft, I got there through the draft by representing Puerto Ricans who weren't going to serve in Vietnam um, and who said we're independent. Um, and I came up with 30 different legal reasons why they shouldn't serve from, you know, false treaties, occupation, they don't vote, all these things. Um, we lost almost every case, but in some ways we won them all. None of them, I think, wound up going to jail um, because by the time I litigated them and got them sympathetic, and it's a longer story. But I then went from that to representing the Vieques protesters. Uh, they were doing, and that became a big issue later on even, but in the 70s, the U.S. military base on Vieques was doing regular bombing runs um, to drop bombs in the Atlantic, uh, and it was a big fishing place for the fishermen off of Puerto Rico, but in Vieques in particular, and I wound up representing the Vieques fishermen and the protesters. Why are they dropping bombs in the Atlantic? They're testing it. They're testing ordnance and how they fly it and all this. The big military base is probably a third of the island. So that becomes uh, a big issue. Uh, and I wound up doing a lot of the work in going to Puerto Rico a lot. Then, of course, there were lots of, uh, uh, there were lots of bombings going on. And this is all through the Center for Constitutional Rights? All, all through the center, but it was a lot of work going on, not just at the center, but the center was really doing a lot of the legal work around uh, around Puerto Rico and, on, and and others on their own. A lot of the, there were grand juries that were that try and destroy the uh, Puerto Rican movement, that tried to call people in to be questioned and all these kind of things. So it became, in the 70s, it was a, it was a very big issue. And, and then there's another place 
where the United States, uh, in the name of getting Spain out, colonized, and that was Cuba. And you, you go there in 73. How does that come yeah, about? Uh, you know, we always called, uh, or maybe Fidel, or one of the, maybe the poet, Jose Marti from Puerto Rico called, he used to, they used to call Puerto Rico and, uh, and uh, Cuba two wings of the same bird. Really, they're sisters in a way, and two wings of the same imperialist bird, I think, is, is what is meant. Cuba ostensibly got its independence, um, but was dominated and controlled by the United States. And also a military base, which is still there, which is, represents my work over the years with Haitians and now Guantanamo. Guantanamo is uh, Cuban. The uh, U.S. has a forever lease there, essentially. Uh, I went to Cuba in 73 the first time. By that time, it's interesting, I, I forgot this, but I was already representing the Benzeramos Brigade. The Benzeramos Brigade would send progressive uh, Americans to Cuba to do work, sugarcane work or construction work, uh, as a way of breaking the blockade of Cuba. And so my first trip was in 73. Before then, I, for two years, I'd probably been representing the brigade. They probably weren't that much in existence that much longer, five years or something. Um, and eventually, I went on a brigade. That was in 76. I did construction for six weeks. Uh, a fascinating time, obviously. But my first trip was 73. Uh, and of course, many stories about it. But the main one that, that comes to me now about it um, I mean, first of all, we thought it was going to be a workers' socialist paradise. And in part, it felt that way. I mean, this was, look, Che was only killed in 68, so he was killed, you know, five years before. So you still were with the comrades of Che. You go to Cuba in 73, the Vietnam War is still going on. You go into, a, in, into like the bar in the Havana Libre, and it's filled with Black Panthers and Vietnamese revolutionaries from Central America. It was a heady, I mean, incredible feeling. And, of course, you went out to the... You know, the, the schools and the, and the fact that all the school kids had to do work in the farms for six weeks. And, you know, then the rent is 5% of your income, you know, et cetera. There, were, there, were, there was at least a very positive feeling. I'm not saying more negative things, but certainly uh, for young people like us coming out of, you know, the United States and out of what had been a revolutionary time even for us, you know, it was a really heady atmosphere in 1973 in Cuba. But I remember a conversation I had talking about the U.S. and imperialism. And it's June 1973. I'm sitting down with the dean of the law school, and there was very little law in Cuba. They pretty much got rid of capitalist law. Um, it was run by, there were, you know, there were popular tribunals in each community and all these kinds of things. Uh, but there was still a law school. Um, not with a lot of people in it, but there was a law school. And we're sitting down discussing what's happening in South America, and, he, and we're being optimistic about it. 73, we have the, it's still Allende, is, and the socialists are still in power in, uh, in Chile. Um, we have the Tupamoros in Uruguay who are a real force to be reckoned with. You have a liberal military government in Peru, and probably more that I'm not remembering right now. And we're saying we're really on, we're being, speaking of socialism or progressivism, is really on the ascendancy. And what you saw within probably, certainly within Chile, was by September 11th, the overthrow of Allende. You eventually saw the jailing and torturing and murder of the Tupamaros. And I gather the overthrow of uh, the Peruvian, some way change in the Peruvian military government. So you saw the United States almost with the back of its hand just sweep across progressive movements in Central and South America, South America in this case, and just wipe them out. Uh, and that, that's a real lesson that was learned repeatedly by me and others, uh, of course, when it will go, in, go into the 80s. Mm -hmm. well, when you're in Cuba uh, and when you come back from Cuba, 
you, you must hear uh, from sort of liberal friends of yours, uh, or you might have at any rate, that you know, you're defending the freedom of speech, the right to organize, the right to protest, um, civil rights, and then they would say in Cuba, people don't have that. Cuba supported by the Soviet Union, where they don't have such rights. Um, what was your own thinking in terms of you know, your fight for civil rights in the United States and then what you found in Cuba? You know, part the kind of lawyers we're trained to be and the way our Constitution works in this country is we put a very high premium on what we call civil rights. Free speech, right to vote, um, all kinds of civil rights. We put almost no premium, in fact zero, on what I call fundamental economic rights. The right to health care, the right to shelter, the right to school, um, the right to work really almost none. And lawyers are trained in a certain kind because that's what our Constitution reflects. It doesn't guarantee uh, those rights. It guarantees my right to sit here and talk to you. Yeah, you I mean, can pursue happiness, but there's no guarantee of a job. Right. Yeah. So my, uh, and, and actually our legal system isn't one that can get at what I call fundamental economic rights. And without going into an analysis of what, you know, democracy in Cuba and whether the right to vote means democracy or not, you know, particularly when it's manipulated by huge amounts of money and all that, without even having to critique that, my fundamental belief is that I start from economic rights. I start from the guarantees to human beings that their children can be educated, they can get medical care, they can get shelter. Um, and after that, I'm willing to start talking about um, what other rights they are, they are necessitated by. I'd like to see them go together, but what I can't stand hearing is that, you know, a a, 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 you know, a, a poor sugarcane worker in Cuba who can work before the revolution four months a year and the rest of the time is homeless because they only have to plant the crop and pick it for four months, uh, that that person has a right to free speech and that is somehow more important uh, than that person's economic security or his children's. That's my basic take on it. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with that, but do you not think that there was some apologizing going on too much in, in that direction. What I mean by that is a kind of rationalization on some people on the left. You saw it certainly in the Soviet Union. Uh, people would go and come back with that. Well, they have universal health care, they have this and they have that. Um, and, and to some extent with Cuba, I don't think the, the, the situation was ever as politically restricted or repressive, if you want, in Cuba as it was in the Soviet Union. But, but, but that these things do matter. They both matter, is I guess what I'm saying. You know, to the, the, what we have here is, is a superficial democracy if you don't have economic rights. Right. But if you're going to actually be able to defend your economic rights in those kinds of countries, you have to be able to have right to speak and organize. And right. I'm not saying they don't matter. I think they should be coterminous and you no, should have them. I'm not suggesting you, you're saying... No, but I'm saying when but, I come but, if I come back here and your, your point is about how perhaps even people like me or leftists or others look at those in terms of, would I come back and say, well, Cuba does great on this, but it does terrible on this, with the exception of some exceptions, I would say. I would not make that talk here, and I don't make it because the dominant, because what I'm doing by that is essentially reinforcing the dominant narrative in the United States. And the question is how you can, it's a hard question you're asking, because how do you have credibility on what you're saying about Cuba without also embracing, yes, it's not a perfect society, I think. You obviously have to say that. Um, but how do you do it in a way that it doesn't reinforce the dominant narrative in the United States, which is Cuba is just this repressive country that doesn't have unions, that, you know, that doesn't have free speech, um, 
that doesn't give people a share of their government. I mean, there's ways I can take it on with you know popular power and all that, but but in a substantive way. But I do think the real issue, and it's a hard issue. I, I, I think it's a hard issue. Of the problem is the the narrative in this country is so bad on these issues, whether it's around Cuba or other countries, um, that you have to be very careful about how you do that, or else you become essentially, you know. Uh, you know, you say, oh, yeah, they're doing this good, but we have to get them on this. Now, as I say, there's some exceptions. Obviously, the, when Cuban, Cuba went after, you know, homosexuals the way it did, um, that was, a, you know, that, I don't, well, think, was an I don't think the left held its tongue on that particularly. Maybe some, but. Well, there's an interesting debate that's still happening in Cuba, but a few years ago broke out. Where one of the scholars there was saying that, you know, if you're going to introduce uh, co-ventures with Spain, you're going to start having some forms of private ownership. Um, you're going to have all these tourist dollars coming in, and you start to have a stratification between who gets access to these tourist dollars and who doesn't. That, at, at, if not before, at least then, there needs to be the right to have independent unions. Because you know, that, now, now you have the state and the party in kind of a conflict of interest situation. So, uh, that, that kind of discussion that people have had a lot of, obviously, on, the, on that. That's a big discussion. And it has been for years. When we go to Cuba, you know, my driver sometimes is a doctor who makes more money because I pay him in $25 a day, years ago this is, but he would make more money from that than he'd get in Cuban pesos. Um, so, and, you know, there's, so that discussion of the two-tiered system and what tourism means, that's, that's a very heavy discussion. I mean, I mean, the problem is obviously some of it, you know, is the nature of a, of a revolutionary government that takes power through military means. Part of it is maybe that. But part of it is being a completely isolated country um, in, the in the center of the Western Hemisphere. And when you see what the U.S. did, whether it's in Chile or in, when we talked about it, or in the Tipomoros, or, or what it did in the 80s in Nicaragua, is we're not going to have another Cuba in this hemisphere. So it, it's a complex and that complex was the message. That right. was the fear of the United it's States. It's complex about what's happened. And would you say it's ideal the way the society had to be bent um, because of having to deal with a blockade and because of what it had to deal with? No, it's obviously not ideal. Um, and was it ideal that it had to embrace the Soviet Union? Not ideal. Um, that, that, I think, was said internally. It was debated internally. Che would have been against the Che Guevara. Um, you know, that's when it began, just at the edge of his life. Um, so, you know, complica complicated discussions. I mean, there's that in Cuba, and there's a, there's a discussion here. So it's a... And, and as your work continues with CCR, you get more involved in the American attempt to make sure there's no more Cubas in Latin America. Yes, I do. I just want to go back to that last thing, which is I do think that for me, uh, despite this discussion, to me, the fundamental way I start by judging a society is the way I said... Um, what is the economic well-being of its population? Which is why we were talking off camera ahead of time what I should call you, a civil rights lawyer, a human rights right. lawyer, and we settled on radical human rights right. lawyer because it needs that content. That That's not denigrating unions or free speech. Obviously, I want them both, but I don't want a, I don't want a, um, a narrative that says, which is the narrative in the United States, if you have free speech um, or opportunity, quote, um, in a then you have, that's all you have to give your society. I don't accept that. Okay, we're going to continue our series of interviews with Michael Ratner on Reality Asserts Itself on The Real News Network.